This is Henry Lopez, co-host of the How of Business podcast. Do you want to be your own boss and start your own business? Do you aspire to be an entrepreneur and enjoy the freedom of time and location? So what's holding you back from getting started? How do you know if you're actually ready to be your own boss? I would like to invite you to join me for an online program that will help you clearly understand if you are in fact ready. And if you're not quite ready, what do you need to do to get there? To find out more about my online program, please visit thehowofbusiness.com for more information. Welcome to The How of Business with Henry Lopez and David Begin, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Looney Libis. Looney, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So Looney is a serial entrepreneur, a mentor, an investor, an author, and an educator. He has a 25-plus year serial entrepreneur career. He was the founder or has been the founder or co-founder of six different startups. And he's now focused on helping the next wave of entrepreneurs via a variety of efforts, including Fledge, which we will talk about. That's a conscious company accelerator and aviary, a seed fund for impactful startups. And so he's teaching and mentorship, excuse me, he's the author also of the Next Step series of books. There's a whole series of books that he's published to help people with their startups and then the next steps in the process. And the creator of a great informational site I spent a lot of time on doing the research for this show called LunarMobiscuit.com. And don't worry about writing that down. There'll be a link to it on the show notes page for this episode. Uh, so, And on that website, he aggregates information from his books, from his online classes, ongoing thoughts, and advice as he continues to evolve his thinking and helping and mentoring existing startups. So in this episode, Looney's going to share with us his entrepreneurial journey, how he got to where he is today, and the focus that he has today. And what I'd hope to get from him and hope he'll share with us is just some some different ideas on the whole concept of starting a new business and some of the tips and advice, understanding how he helps others start their new business. Tremendous insights there that I'm sure we're going to get out of today's conversation with Looney. He lives, I believe, Looney, if I've got this right, are you on Bainbridge Island? Uh, usually, yeah. T- today I'm at the okay. University of Washington, but yeah, I got live it. Island, uh, across the sound from Seattle. Yeah, yeah, beautiful place. Uh, so once again, Looney, welcome to the show, sir. Sure, great. I can't wait to tell the story. Absolutely. So I usually start, I'd like to go back to when you were in college. If I've got it right, you studied at Carnegie Mellon, you studied math and computer science, and then a little bit later at the University of Washington, got your master's in computer science and engineering. Back then, if, if you go back to that point in time, what were you thinking you were going to do for a living? Uh, you know, I really didn't have any, any idea or any plan. Um, I was really excited to be, you know, 19, 20 years old and have someone pay me to program a computer because <laughs> uh, I'd already been doing that as a hobby for seven or eight years. Uh, and so that, you know, that was my first foray into like being paid for something I love to do. Uh, and I got a job out of college. Uh, it's not on my resume. I got a job out of college at a large established, uh, technology company. Uh, and it took me just about three months to realize that I had uh, taken the wrong advice and I should never have done that. Uh, and I was an entrepreneur. The advice to go work for someone else. Yeah, the normal advice that, uh, you know, you got to go put in your hours and um, start at the bottom and, and work for the big machine and, and learn how to do business the, mm. the right way. Um, yeah, what, what were some of the key reasons why it became so quickly apparent that that was not a fit for you? Oh, my. Uh, I was the low man on the totem pole because I only had a bachelor's at that point. I see. Uh, and so, you know, salaries and, and uh, uh, I don't say prestige, but salaries and, and uh, expectations of who does what was totally set on what degree you had as opposed to what abilities you had. Mm-hmm. Um, this company used the, used the tagline that they always hired the best and the brightest. Um, and yet I looked around the rest of the team and I was wondering what they were thinking. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, in, in the particular, I'm not going to go into 
details of what we were doing. But in the particular project we were working on, um, uh, a lot of people just kept coming back to me. I, I'd done some, uh, I'd done a senior project, which was kind of rare at Carnegie Mellon, uh, working on operating systems. And so a lot of the staff in the group came to me for uh, information on how these things worked. And again, I was just the developer, I, not even an adjective before the word developer. Um, uh, and so that just all seemed weird and strange mm -hmm. and, uh, and everything moved too slowly and there was too, you know, way too many meetings and whatnot. So it didn't take very long to realize that there were other things to do in the world that could get done much quicker if, if only we actually had the best and the brightest around. Yeah. So that, that concept or that desire for getting things rapidly done speed was, was a common thing even then for you. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I, I did hang on for many more months. I think I stayed there for 10 months before finally quitting. Uh, boss had no idea what it, why on earth I was quitting. Right. Uh, got in the car, took a, took some time to get out to Seattle. I actually just pulled out a map and said, I'm going to start a software company. Um, I don't want to go move to the Bay area. I didn't really like the sprawl and the traffic and the excessively high prices of things in the Bay area. And so this was 1992. There really wasn't anywhere else to go. Like mm -hmm. you could go anywhere else in 1992. Uh, and so I, I literally had a ranch McNally paper map and I pulled it out and, uh, I looked around and, uh, I also looked at like the weather because I had grown up on the East coast and in a little bit in LA and, uh, was tired of snow and tired of brutal heat and, uh, and picked Seattle. And, and so speaking of weather, the whole supposed it rains all the time didn't scare you. It rains every day in Seattle. So, and you uh, like we that? Have, we have enough people here. So, so I tell everybody it rains every single day. All <laughs> the sun never comes out. It's dark. Never comes out. There's never a beautiful day. You can never see the mountains. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, I grew up in, in uh, New Jersey and L.A. and the weather here is way better than, than either of those. I went to school in Pittsburgh. The weather here is, is oh. spectacular compared to there. But but, uh, you know, don't move here because we have plenty of people here. That's right. Enough. <laughs> Fantastic. So uh, and so around that time, is that when you decided to go to the University of Washington? Uh, no, that came way later. So I uh, started my first software company. Uh, back in 1991, there was a cover article uh, from Byte Magazine, which is defunct mm. for decades now. I remember. Uh, on the next thing, which was what we called pen computers back then. We, we call them tablets today. Uh, and I believed it, and so did a whole lot of other people. Uh, and so I went and started the software company for tablet computers, which turned into PDAs, which turned into smartphones. Uh, and my first company, we had uh, we had our own software. To talk about getting things done quickly, we we shipped something like eight pieces of software in three years. Wow. Um, three or four of those were our own, and then we did projects for uh, Sony, Motorola, Panasonic, AT&T, and Philips. Um, and so they, they hired us to write software for their devices and we had software built into lots of these PDAs. Um, you know, one of the big lessons I have in my career, we'll just jump to the, the, the punchline really quickly here. Uh, timing is really important. Um, Apple sold more tablets in 2010 in the first minute of sales than were sold in the nineties mm. combined everything. Amazing. Uh, so we were just 17 years too, too soon. Tony, on that point, do you think you've gotten better at predicting timing or is it still very much a, uh, a gamble to an extent? I am still always a little bit ahead, but I'm getting better at being less ahead. So it, meaning, meaning that your idea is too soon for the market. You're getting a little better at you're getting better at making that closer to identifying when the market is ready for this next idea. Yeah. So my first one was 17 years too soon. And the second <laughs> one was five or six years too soon. And the third one was pretty close, but, um, uh, missed out on the, on the, uh, on the smartphones when they showed up. And then the next one was pretty good on time. I think mean, we, we hit that one about right. And the next one was about right. And the current one, you know, maybe we started a year too soon, but what is making you so much? What has made you so much better at that? I mean, at a high level, obviously, there's a lot that goes into it. I, I suspect, but why? Uh, what are some of the reasons you think you've gotten so much better at it? Uh, just re, uh, I difference between a serial entrepreneur and a first time entrepreneur is a serial entrepreneur knows what went wrong the first time. Um, 
So there, there are very few successful serial entrepreneurs where, where they've had back-to-back successes. That doesn't happen very often. Usually serial entrepreneurs means the first ones didn't work out so well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so in my case, the first one we shut down, the second one uh, we were going public, but in the dot-com bubble. Um, uh, the rest of them are still running in some form or have been acquired. Uh, so, you know, uh, there's a little exception there, but, but they weren't like, thought the first one was a huge hit and the second one was a huge hit and so forth. So, you know, try not to make the same mistakes more than once. Uh, and one thing you note in, in, when you do this enough times is uh, it's really hard to find customers, right? You think it's the best idea in the world, whatever it is you're working on, cause that's why you're working on it. But, uh, it's really rare when, uh, other people think the same thing. And so how, how do you find these customers? How long does it take you to close them? How expensive is it to, to um, keep your company running while you're closing customers? Just you realize how hard that is. Yeah. Uh, and you, uh, I think what, what happens is uh, the further along I got, the more I talked to potential customers and understood whether or not I had something they liked before, yeah. before calling it day one. Yeah, there was a, along those lines, there's a, there's a lot that you talk about as far as planning along these lines that I think comes into play. Um, but somewhere I'm looking for the quote now, but, it, but it's yeah. to the point of it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how good your idea you think your idea is until it gets vetted. And until you have some proof of it, that then it becomes a good idea. Um, yeah. The way I talk about it when I teach this is uh, you need to do business planning. Right? There, there's a meme out there that says, you know, skip the business planning, just launch already. Uh, I think that might be true in the, you know, the app world where most, almost nothing's going to stick, right? You can throw lots of spaghetti at the wall. Uh, in the real world where there are real companies and real customers and, and things like revenues, uh, you got to plan. Uh, but what we now know, which I didn't know uh, 25 years ago, but now you know, everybody in the industry should know is that your plan is wrong, right? Uh, which is great. You have a plan. You know it's wrong. You don't know where it's wrong. Your job is to launch and note the flaws and fix them as quickly as possible and come up with the next plan, plan B, uh, which is also wrong. And then find its flaw and work on it and fix it and get to plan C, which is also wrong. And plan E is wrong and plan G is wrong and plan onward and onward. Your plans are always wrong. But it's fine because you know they're going to be wrong. Uh, And you you can plan accordingly. So... Uh, the, the phrase that I learned for this is plan for failure, which is not planning to fail plan that you're plan that there will be a failure somewhere and act accordingly. Yeah. Great stuff. Okay. So when I accelerate then in, in your path, why did you decide to go back to get the masters? Uh, so I was at my second company. Uh, we were, uh, early com boom. We were doing a, a piece of software for, uh, fortune 500s to get, uh, feedback from the web before the web had a had a feedback channel. Um, and uh, the first company I did that was venture backed, so we had lots of money. I, don't, I actually don't remember how how much, but it was more than we needed. Uh, the company got to grow to about ninety people, and one of the and they they did the standard practice of uh, shooting the the founder CEO, my partner, uh, who stuck mm-hmm. around nonetheless. They brought in a. a a guy who had never done it before. He'd never been a CEO. So they brought in a, a yes man. Uh, and uh, he really wanted to keep the founders around and keep the team growing and keep everybody happy. So he instituted a, a perk, which was we'll pay for your tuition anywhere you want to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the University of Washington had a uh, almost brand new program for doing a, a master's in computer science after work. Uh, this was 1999. Um, this is before YouTube, before Coursera, and I, I wanted to learn some more stuff, but there wasn't any way to, to do it easily. There wasn't any online, online, uh, classrooms yet. Uh, and so here I got a free masters. Um, it was after work. It was 15 minutes from my home uh, and it came with a library card to the, to the library. So, yeah. um, so I said, yes. Yeah. And an opportunity you couldn't pass up there, obviously. Yeah. And, and even if I had to pay for it, uh, at the time, schools were still pretty cheap. It was like $10,000, uh, which is the whole thing. Was What's your recommendation to an entrepreneur now? Would you recommend that someone go on and get a master's like you did? 
I would say that it is extremely useful. It is now possible to go and learn entrepreneurship um, either online or or uh, you know in a school. Uh, I think it's worthwhile. Um, I I have a theory that says uh, failure in startups is in part due to the founders not knowing everything, right? Not knowing how to do everything. Uh, and I've, I've been proving this out. So I, I found this, um, I found this tool online that was, uh, on hacker news for developers. And it was just kind of this tool that measured your, your, uh, seven skills of, of coding. Right. Uh, and I adapted it for entrepreneurship and, um, I don't remember what the seven skills are, but there's something like, um, you know, business planning, finance, marketing, sales, fundraising operations. And I think the other one is design. Yeah. Um, and so whenever I bring in a student or a fledgling or you know entrepreneur, I have them fill that out first before I talk to them. Uh, and every once in a while, you find someone who's well-rounded. Um, but you know, usually you find people that have gaps. You know, I've never done sales or I'm not comfortable doing marketing or I've never done fundraising. Uh, and if you can't do all those pieces uh, and you're a founder of a company, then you, you're, I don't know how you're going to succeed because you're missing something that's super important. Right. If you don't know how to do sales, pretty obvious, you're not going to make too many sales. Um, but furthermore, if you don't know, if you personally don't know how to do sales, I don't know how you're going to hire a salesperson because how do you know if they're doing it right? right? Again, it's really hard to find customers. Most of the time your message is wrong or your product is wrong or something's wrong about uh, what you're bringing to market. And you can't tell if you don't know how to do sales, you don't know whether or not it's the salesperson's fault for not selling it correctly or whether the product is just flawed and uh, the sales guy's doing a totally fine job and you just have to go back to the product and fix it there. Um, and the same thing true for fundraising and finance and, and onward. Uh, so you can I, fill in these gaps now. You, you, don't have to, you don't have to do what I did, which is uh, learn in the street. Right. And that's, that's the key takeaway. I filled it out last night and here's where I had the challenge, Looney, and I'm sure you help people with it. It's, it's always so hard to evaluate yourself. And, and I was trying to be as honest as possible, but let me give you an example. I have a, an extensive background in sales, selling software systems throughout the nineties, but I don't know if that necessarily makes me good at selling my entrepreneurial idea. And that's where I kind of struggled with answering it. Uh, that's a good point. Um, you know, I know I actually don't, I use it just to gauge where they are. And if I get someone who's a first time entrepreneur, right, it's, it's a scale of zero to six or zero to seven. And if they're like all sixes, then I just know I have someone with an ego problem. Right. Um, right. Most likely unless they're you know older than me and they've been doing it forever. Second time entrepreneur. But, um, usually they'll, they'll people, um, at least in the world of social good, which is the world I'm in now, I don't see too many ego problems. But I, I haven't tested this theory on the tech entrepreneurs. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't handed this over to a, a whole lot of tech entrepreneurs. I think we'd see more sevens in that crowd. Yeah. So along, along that lines, the reason I made the point specifically on sales is, of course, one of the big things you talk about is getting good at not just pitching, but storytelling. And so I think I'm pretty good at storytelling, but but I don't know. I, maybe I'm not that as good as I think at, as I am at it. I'm sure a lot of the people that come into the incubator might think that they're good at it, and then you help them get better at it, right? I think uh, so. We've had 63 companies come through the program, come through the Fledge program, uh, and uh, two of them were good at storytelling. Uh, so we, we you know, basically we tell them. Uh, in the normal realm, step back. In the normal realm of accelerators, there's a demo day, uh, and at demo day, you do your investor pitch. And due to the laws in the U.S., you usually just leave out the last part about raising money. But you do your standard investor pitch. Here's the problem and the solution and the customers and so forth. Um, yeah, what we try and do at Fledge is TED Talks. So we work with mission-driven for-profits, and therefore there's something interesting there. There's that mission piece. And so we want people to stand up and in five minutes do a TED Talk, right? TED Talks are usually even longer than five minutes. Uh, and so that's a story, right? You got, you got to tell a really interesting story. Don't tell the standard pattern of, 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 of just problem solution customers. Um, and so only twice in 63 tries have we ever had uh, an entrepreneur stand up on our first day of, of working on this uh, and tell a great story. 
Uh, and in both cases, we were able to like make it better, but they were already, you know, uh, on that scale of zero to seven, they were already at, at seven. Curious, what was, what was their background? Was there any uh, common well, themes there as to what led you to say, like, oh, I can see why they were so good at it? Um, no, not com- Well, no, not common. So one was a 20 year old African kid uh, who had started his company two years earlier uh, when he's 18. And so he had, he had told this story many times. So he had been on TV and uh, he's, he's highly acclaimed. And so I think he had just practiced it enough times. Is he uh, the smokeless uh, um, coal guy? Was that, was that the yeah, one? This is Tom Osborne at Green Jar. Yeah, yeah I watched uh, his video. He's, he is yeah, he's, compelling. He's yeah. Uh, and he just may just be a compelling person. Right? And that's probably how he got so far at age mm-hmm. 20. Uh, and the other person was uh, Nemeka, oh, I can't try his last name, uh, from uh, Nigeria, Cold Hubs. Uh, he ran a radio station for about 10 years and had a radio, radio program. So he told stories for a living. Um, and so you know, he stood up and told a great story. And it was a story about a tomato, which is you know, what I loved about this, about his story is it was not about... It didn't start or end with his company. It started with a tomato. Uh, uh, and that made it interesting. Yep. And again, he, he told a great story, but we, didn't, we made it a little bit better. Uh, everybody else had just, everybody else struggles through this process. And I think, you know, again, I, I'm all theories and, and it, it's hard to prove these things. They don't really teach us to write stories in school. Uh, they teach us to write essays in school. Right. Here's the three part essay, you know, right. tell us what you're going to tell us, tell it to us and tell us how you told it to us um, and start with some facts. And, you know, essays are really boring. Um, when somebody reads you an essay verbally, it's really boring. Uh, and so when we do this process 61 times out of 63, the first draft reads like an essay. Um, and I throw it back at him and I say, that's nice. I'm glad you got good grades in school. Now let's, let's tell a good story. Um, uh, I also tell my, my, my anecdote, my teaching moment at storytelling is to point out that, uh, there's an industry that tells stories, uh, you know, the, the city of Los Angeles and Hollywood, that's what they do. That is their business, right? It's, it's the business. Uh, there are professionals that get paid to do it. And yet almost everything that they throw at us is terrible. So, you know, that's the bar we have to, we have to, we have to tell a story that's good, and yet we're not professionals. Yeah. But what makes it even more difficult, Looney, is as you talk about, is you got to tell the story of the numbers as well. And that's certainly something very few of us have any experience doing, right? Yeah. You know, we, we get through this. Almost everybody finishes with at least a TEDx talk. Um, I, we, we haven't had too many that I would, I would say uh, were TED quality because it takes three months to put together a TED talk. And we, we do it in three weeks. Um, the trick that we use is the same trick we use for business planning and everything else, which is iteration. So every day for three weeks, we are telling the stories to each other and then we bring in outsiders to get their opinions and those opinions don't uh, you know, conflict with each other. Um, but they bring out other ideas and you just keep iterating and iterating until you have something that seems to work and it will, it won't work for the whole crowd, but it'll work for enough of the crowd that, that you'll get accolades. Uh, and then uh, the second part of this, uh, which most people in the world have just never done, uh, is practice telling it 30 or 40 or 50 times. Yeah. Uh, and so you, know, you, may, you may think you've practiced something before because you've done it five times, uh, but there is a total different experience practicing a five-minute speech 30 times. Uh, it, it puts it in a, in a different part of your brain. It comes out differently. Um, it's something, it's something that, again, most people don't ever get to do in their life unless they've done like theater and mem- memorized their lines. Right. Um, and even then, they probably haven't rehearsed 30 times. Mm-hmm. I suppose one of the things that happens at that point in time is you're no longer thinking about the syntax of it or the words. You're communicating the emotion and the feeling and your passion behind this idea. And so that story is coming through and better able to resonate. Is that right? Uh, seemingly so I, you know, uh, I do it too. So uh, just, just to keep a, just to keep it fair, every time there's a demo day, I do my own talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have a bound on my, on the time limit on mine cause I run the show. Uh, I think the longest one I did was eight minutes. Um, 
and I've practiced these, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 times as well. Uh, I basically just black out. Like I step up on stage, I do my talk, I step off stage and no time has passed. Um, uh, and you know, I can, I can do all eight, eight pitches still, eight stories still, but, uh, I don't really remember doing them. So you're, you're not up there thinking about what you're doing. You just do it. Yeah. 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 That's what I was trying to say. You just said it much more eloquently than I. This is Henry Lopez, co-host of the How of Business podcast. Do you want to be your own boss and start your own business? Do you aspire to be an entrepreneur and enjoy the freedom of time and location? So what's holding you back from getting started? How do you know if you're actually ready to be your own boss? I would like to invite you to join me for an online program that will help you clearly understand if you are in fact ready. And if you're not quite ready, what you need to do to get there. Perhaps you need help understanding and overcoming your fears. Maybe you're not entirely sure about what it really takes to be ready, willing, and able to become your own boss. My online program is about helping you take the first critical steps towards realizing your dreams of entrepreneurship. I will take you step-by-step step through a process that will help you determine if you are in fact ready to be your own boss and specifically identify what you need to do next. To find out more about my online program, please visit thehowofbusiness.com for more information. You also talk about, in one of the videos I watched or doing the research, about seeking creative advice in other venues. In other words, that certainly as entrepreneurs, we tend to stay within our circle and get input from other entrepreneurs and read business books only. And you make the point that that creativity comes from different sources. I, I'm always passionate about talking about the topic of creativity because I think it's such an important one and one that most of us, what I have found, my opinion is that in our society, certainly in this part of the world, we were taught to bury our creativity to an extent. And I'd just like to get your, your thoughts on that, on developing, cultivating, and bringing creativity into the process. Well, there's two questions in there. So the answer the first one, um, on, I think it's on my lesson on storytelling, which you couldn't get to because it was behind the paywall. Um, I, I point out, you should go listen to a certain episode of song exploder or like every episode of song exploder, which is a, a podcast by musicians, uh, breaking apart their songs and showing you how they put them together. Awesome series. Cause it shows you a totally different cre creativity path. Uh, same thing. There's a link on that page to the new um, Pixar in a Box series on Khan Academy, which is free to everybody. Um, right? Pixar, you know, on average has made the best films of any um, studio ever. Um, right? In terms of whatever metrics you want to measure them on. Uh, but you know, if you look at the history of Pixar, they threw away Toy Story after it was done and redid it from scratch. Uh, it, it wasn't up to their snuff. And then they did the same thing with A Bug's Life. And then they did the same thing with, uh, I don't remember what the third film was. Uh, they have a history of throwing away an entire script after it's been written because it's not up to their standard. Um, uh, there's a lesson that I learned in the New York Times that I teach to my students, uh, which again, I wish they would teach at school. Uh, school always asks you to turn in your best and your, your best home, your best version. Right. You, you write, write this essay or write this poem or whatever uh, and give us one version. Uh, and so we're all taught to do that. And um, it stifles creativity. And so what the New York Times article pointed out was uh, that is if you want to create something interesting, uh, then don't don't do that. <laughs> what you should do instead uh, is, uh, you know, do a first draft. You know, review it once, edit it, make it good, uh, put it aside. Uh, now do it again. Now you have a good draft, so you know you could be a little more creative a second time. But you know, try something new. Um, you know, review it, edit it, put it aside. When you say do it again, come, don't pick up that previous version. Start yeah. over from from, from blank, zero. Blank sheet. So you know, if, if you're like things that happen, like uh, you know, write your two paragraph description of your company. Great. So sit down and write your two paragraph description of your company uh, and then put it aside and then try again, right? Without looking at the first version, just try again, try a different way. 
Um, but the most important thing is, is after you put, put aside the second one, you have two totally fine, good versions of your, of your drafts. And, you know, if you just worked on those, you'd probably have something that was really good. But um, now you're free to do something crazy. So now you can take your next sheet of paper and you can tell the story backwards or you can tell a totally outrageous version of your story. You can try bringing in humor. You can do something that you would never, ever do on your first draft because you have the first draft that's sitting over there next to you. And you have a second draft, too. So, you know, you don't even have to worry about having something that's slightly better. You go totally crazy. And what we find is if you do this for real every time you're supposed to do something creative, Sometimes, well, not every time it sparks something great, but you know, right. it sparks new ideas that you can then meld either into that first version if you want to be conservative or take some of the conservative parts and meld it into the crazy version. Um, but you get better ideas. And so it sounds as like releasing that stress or pressure of getting it done to some level, some other level of perfection or somebody other, somebody else's standard, it frees you to then be completely open and creative if yeah, I'm following that, you right. Yeah. Yes. And so when we're doing our storytelling exercises, you know, third day or fourth day, right, right, we, we know what you we know what you've done all week. It's fine. It's good. It's, it's not great. Um, so tomorrow, bring something totally crazy. You know, try it in a totally new way. We're going to bring a different audience in. It's never seen you before. Uh, and we'll see what they say. And, you know, more often than not, they say that was interesting, but I wouldn't do that on stage. Does it happen often, no, Looney, that you, you might take pieces of it and add it to what you end up, your final product or final story ends up being? Of, of course, of course. Yeah. And, uh, and one of my favorite stories comes from the very, very first pledge. Uh, I had one entrepreneur who couldn't even do the standard pitch. He was just too nervous. He had never really done public speaking. He was terrible, just absolutely terrible. Um, and I think it was, we were maybe four or five days before demo day, because I think we only did two weeks back then. Um, and so I was nervous at what to do with him. And I was thinking of plan B on, on how else to, to get his story across. Uh, and I think that night I was watching or rewatching A Man on the Moon, which is the movie about Andy Kaufman. Uh, and, uh, and so I basically wrote an Andy Kaufman bit for him. Uh, and for those of you who don't remember Andy Kaufman, he's been gone a long time. Uh, he, he didn't like to be called a comedian. He liked to be called a, uh, an entertainer because his favorite thing to do was to make the audience uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Not to make them laugh. Just put them in a situation that made them just feel um, totally uncomfortable. So I wrote a bit like that for for this entrepreneur. It's, uh, you can still see it online. It's, um, it's Gene Hamaki in my turn. Uh, and that was totally different. And, and he pulled it off. I, I thought he did a better job than I did when I, uh, when I did it in front of the crowd. Hmm. Uh, and it's one of my favorite moments of all time is in, in all of the fledged demo days is when he and his partner pull, pull out their phone and did selfie on stage um, <laughs> years before we even had the word selfie. Um, and, uh, and so that was fun. And then another one like that was, uh, an entrepreneur, his name's, uh, Yusuf Tura from Obama stove, a uh, man from Ethiopia. Uh, he could not coherently speak with slides in front of him. It's just like the, the slides got in the way and, and his, he just couldn't get the story out. Uh, and so I just turned to him and said, tomorrow, you know, forget the slides. You know, we're just going to put your logo behind you. Uh, tomorrow, just come in and tell your story. Uh, and he came in and he just blew us away. Right? So he was a natural storyteller, but he just wasn't using those talents when we told him to tell a story with, with slides. Right. And so he is the only one who ever went on stage with no slides. Um, Interesting. And and it's one of the best talks ever. Interesting. Thanks you for thanks for sharing those stories. So I want to now take a little bit of step back and and talk about Fledge and the founding of Fledge. My, my question is what what led you to starting Fledge? And maybe we should explain what Fledge is a little okay, bit so more. Fledge is the Conscious Company Accelerator. It is uh, a uh, it's the best practices of the tech accelerators. Uh, but brought over into the world of social good. So we, we work with mission-driven for-profits from around the world. Um, uh, what happens? Uh, two, uh, three things happened to make Fledge, Fledge occur. Uh, one was uh, I had woken up uh, God, about eight years ago after being an entrepreneur, 17 years, doing five startups, 
Uh, and uh, four of them were still running. And I realized that I must know something about this startup thing, but I, I didn't know what it was. Um, so I should share. I should find some place where I can share my, my experience with others. Uh, and I couldn't find a place. Uh, again, talk about too soon. It was before Startup Weekend. It was before Techstars came to Seattle. It was before all this wave of entrepreneurship helped. So I, I really didn't find any, any great place to go and um, give back. Uh, but eventually, in 2011, I discovered serendipitously a business school that was first in the world to teach uh, what they call the sustainable MBA, or what I call how to do good by doing business. Uh, and it happened to be on Bainbridge Island. And again, it was out of the blue, uh, shouldn't have happened, but it did. Uh, and so I said, can you use me? And they, they said, sure, you know, sit in the back of the classroom. There, there's three teachers in the room already. Just be another voice, walk around, help the students, you know, do whatever you want to be useful. Uh, and I did that for six months. And for six months, I learned that it was possible to do good by doing business because nobody had ever shown me that before. Um, and, uh, and then my, uh, so that's one. And then two, uh, my last software company, my fifth startup, uh, left town on me and I was free to do anything I wanted. And it was the first time in 20 years that I didn't have a business plan on the side. Uh, and so what I wanted to do, what I figured out really quickly was I wanted to do something where I could help people start companies uh, because that's the part of, uh, I really like starting companies, right? Uh, in, in 20 years, my favorite moments in time were, I have an idea. I think I think this could be a company. Let's figure it out. Let's figure out the product. Let's go get the first customer. So I wanted to do that for a living. Uh, and then the third thing that came around was uh, I was introduced again serendipitously to a um, guy in town named Brian Howe who had just started something called Impact Hub Seattle. And uh, it, it was a week old. It was a co-working and community space for social good. Um, still is. Uh, and, um, uh, it was about a week old, uh, we hit it off and he, he, like our parting remarks for our hour meeting was, oh, by the way, we really need an accelerator in here. And I turned to him, I said, oh, well, I've been researching accelerators for the past month. I can tell you pretty much anything you want to know about them, except I've never heard of one in social good. And so we worked on that for a few months to figure out whether it could work or not. Uh, and once we were satisfied it could work, then I went off and started Fledge, and it operates inside Impact Hub Seattle. Okay. So could you define for us a little bit further what you mean by – you have different definitions that all mean the same thing. Uh, conscious, uh, impactful, mission-driven, for-profit. As I was doing the research, you give some definitions on that. But if you could share that with us again, what what types of entrepreneurs or startup ideas are you yeah, looking you know, for? Yeah, Every time you go to an impact event, one of the topic, one of the big questions is what 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 is impact? Yeah. Um, no one has a def, no one has a good definition. It's one of those where you, you know it when you see it. Um, uh, best way to describe it in general: uh, solving real problems, uh, poverty, hunger, unemployment, environment, health, right? C serious problems that affect billions of people around the world. Uh, if you can if you can solve that and solve it through business through for profit business then then you fit the uh, this this area that I call doing good by doing business or or conscious companies or impactful companies or uh, you know we, the world doesn't have a name for this yet but those are you have a criteria that you apply then and if I understood correctly you take on two classes two groups a year of about seven uh, oh, yeah. fledglings as you call them is that right you're, you're actually a little bit behind. So um, we were doing two per year in Seattle, and as of last year, we started doing uh, one per city, per, uh, one group of seven per city per year. Uh, we added Lima, Peru last year, uh, and then this year we we've not announced it, but we have a um, uh, we expect to announce a program in Europe uh, in October, uh, and then next year we expect to add one or two more. And so you know, in, a, in a few years, there'll be seven, eight, nine, ten of these pledge programs running uh, all around the world, all focused on uh, global businesses. And it's a 10-week program. And if I understood correctly, you usually make an investment or that is part of the, the deal is you make an investment in those that you accept? Yeah. So we pay them to come. 
that we hand over in Seattle, we hand over $20,000 in cash uh, and 10 weeks of help in exchange for a small percentage of the company. Fantastic. So what I'd like to, we've touched on quite a bit already about what, what makes these startups successful, some of the things that make them no, not so successful. We talked about the ability to tell the story. We talked about the business planning and how it's always wrong up front. Um, you also, in some of the research I was doing, you talk about some of the other reasons for failure, common reasons, if I got this right. One was uh, a flaw. So you identify a flaw in your idea or your business model that just can't be resolved. So that brings the idea or the business to an end. You run out of time or money. That's that's obviously the most common one that happens in any walk of, of business life. Or also, thirdly, I think you mentioned that the founders kind of have a parting of ways or not kind of, they, they kind of diverge in their vision or their ability to work together. Are those kind of the, the three main things you see are common when a startup fails? Yeah, but, you know, you know seriously, those three are symptoms. Um, you know, in all three cases, the fundamental issue is that you couldn't find enough customers that would pay you enough money to keep the business, mm. business Got running. It. Yeah. yeah. Right? Uh, and, you know, you don't have founder issues when everything's going well. And you don't run out of money when the customers are, are uh, knocking on your door. Um, and so, you know, in, in the end, that really, there's, there's only one thing, you know, I, I tried this way. I've written six books on entrepreneurship. It takes me, you know, 20, 30 hours to teach it to, to a first-time entrepreneur. But when pushed to summarize it into one, one snippet, uh, there's only one thing, for, there's only one secret to business, right? You have to produce something. The customers will buy for more than it costs you to build and sell to them. And if you can do that, you have a successful business. Right. Now, the types of businesses that you interact with are not the traditional brick and mortar type businesses. They're either developing a product or I think most of them are developing some sort of a product, maybe a service. And through this process, they're validating and testing that they can actually get a customer for this product. Right. Yeah. And and then we do have a couple of brick and mortars. We have a, 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 a series of um, agro vet shops, as they call them in Malawi. And uh, we got a, um, a chicken farmer in Tanzania with a great model. Um, but yeah, most of the time they're producing a product or service and selling it widely, selling it, selling it nationally, at least nationally. Is it not a bigger challenge, Looney, when you are doing the brick and mortar in that you're having to make some decisions about, okay, I'm going to lease this piece of space or build this building and and build it, and then some of it is build it and see if there will come. How do you, in those situations, in those types of businesses, iterate and test before I make that level of commitment and investment? Um, yeah, start small. Start start with one shop. Don't 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 walk in and say it will. I don't want to name names. We, we've had entrepreneurs come in and say, well, here's how it's going to work. We're going to launch 50 of these um, storefronts or kiosks or whatever. Uh, and, uh, and they'll come, right? And it'll be great. And we just need a half a million dollars to go do that uh, or a million dollars to go do that. And what they'll learn in 10 weeks or what they'll learn in two weeks out of the 10 weeks uh, is that, uh, A, no one was going to fund that. Uh, the B... Uh, whatever they thought was going to work probably isn't. So you're better off launching one or two, uh, see how they go, find the flaws. And once they're working, then go and scale it up to 15 and then scale it up to 30 and then scale it up to 50 and 100. Right. And it's that step that we're missing. I think, I think what happens sometimes is we get, we get confused with what we think the venture capital or other investors are looking for, which is the potential for scale, exponential potential for scale. But we're missing the part that we need to build up to that, not necessarily start with that. Yeah. You know, part of that is that uh, the venture capitalists have become more uh, conservative after the dot-com boom. Uh, so in, I'm old enough that I have, I've been able to fly down to California um, walk into a Sandhill Road venture capital firm with a PowerPoint deck and a partner and walked out with a handshake and uh, soon afterwards, you know, 30 days later, a multi-million dollar check. Mm-hmm. That really doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Um, it, first-time entrepreneurs, it really doesn't happen anymore. Uh, venture capital has moved up. They, they write bigger checks and they expect more, way more traction now. 
uh, and the angels have followed suit. So way back when I had an angel, he thought we were doing great stuff. He wrote a very large check for, for, for the first company. Um, yeah, angels, they want to see customers. And so there's this myth out there that if you have a great idea, someone will fund it. That, that's a myth. Um, if you have a great idea and you have customers and you want growth capital, then, then, uh, then you can get some funding. Yeah. So, Looney, why did you uh, decide to start doing uh, guest appearances on podcasts? Oh, uh, uh, people started asking. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it, just in general, it, it's, uh, uh, it's one more way to get, this, get these little snippets of, uh, of mentorship out there. Uh, it's one more way to show off, you know, in terms of marketing these days, uh, you know, trying to find entrepreneurs, uh, there isn't like a magazine, right? There's no paper magazines anymore. Uh, there's no website for entrepreneurs that, that attracts entrepreneurs of all these, all these different types. Uh, so what we do is we go and we tell stories online and people hear about them and they tell their friends. And so welcome to the 21st century. So thanks, yeah. thanks for making podcasts. <laughs> Appreciate it. And so what is the, the key message that you would like to communicate? What did I not ask that you want to share with our listeners? Oh, I got to add more, add more in here. Um, uh, kind of, we'll do, we'll do lesson one. Very first thing I usually tell um, my students in class, um, starting a startup is a absolutely crazy thing to do. Uh, <laughs> it, it is hard. It consumes your life. Uh, usually what happens is, at least in my case, my parents told me I was crazy. My spouse or girlfriend at the time told me I was crazy. Uh, your kids tell you you're crazy. Your friends tell you you're crazy. Uh, but you feel compelled to do it. I just want to point out that they are correct, uh, that it is a absolutely crazy thing to do. Uh, but, you know, please take my word for that. I've been doing it for 25 years. I've done six startups and, uh, and I don't plan on stopping. And why do you do it anyway? Oh, it needs to get done. All, all, all 63 of these companies that I've funded need, need to happen. Or all, the, the world needs to be better. It has problems, and, and we're going to go fix them. Is that, so i got to think that's part of what drove you to this point, because before you were developing things that, sure, were needed, but didn't solve world problems. Yeah, I, had, I hadn't drunk that Kool-Aid yet. I, just, I, I didn't even <laughs> know that it was possible for a for-profit to do good uh, the default, the, the, uh, paradigm we live in is, you know, if you want to solve poverty, well, that's for foundations and governments to do that. Right. Uh, for profits can't do that. Uh, you know, that's, it's wrong. It's an incorrect statement, but you know, just no one had ever told me that. Yeah. What do you love most about what you do today? Um, oh my, the, the, the real, the real stories, right? The, the, um, uh, the weekly emails that I get from the fledglings, you know, yes, a lot of them are, I have a problem. I need, I need advice on this, but you know, I, I get updates on what they're doing and, uh, and the work they're doing is just spectacular. All right. Uh, let's talk about books besides your series of books, which we will have links to that website on the show notes page. Is there a book that comes to mind that you would recommend to us? Oh, there's a lot of books. Um, uh, the last one I just read was Marjorie Kelly's uh, "The Divine Right of Capital." Uh, I've been on a on a on a tear trying to go through a bunch of books that explain capitalism. So uh, that's a very different take on capitalism. The one before that I read was uh, I'd not recommend it because it's it's really hard to read. But it was um, uh, Lewis Kelso's book called "The Capitalist Manifesto." Um, one that I highly recommend that's also really hard to read, but everybody should read every page of it is Capital in the 21st Century. Um, and so all of these are on economics. These are not entrepreneurship books. I, the only reason I wrote my books is I couldn't find a book that, that covered the topic. Um, so I said that, and what, what does an entrepreneur do when they see a, a hole in the market is they go fill it. So I, I don't read a whole lot of entrepreneurship books because I, I just can't find them. So you're studying, obviously, capitalism, and I have to believe it's related to your, uh, your mission here of, of showing people how you can make money and still serve a, a bigger, broader good. Yeah, and the bigger issue that, that um, probably I'm just a little bit ahead of the curve, right? We, 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 the news had income inequality. 
uh, you know, yeah. before the election, right? That was a topic that had popped up. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, capital in the 21st century is a 200 year analysis of income and asset inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's what, that's what got me to read it when it came out. Very interesting. Thanks for those recommendations. We'll have links to those on the show notes page. All right, we'll close it up here. A couple of last questions. Any last parting piece of advice or thought for us? Uh, when you see a problem in the world, figure out how to fix it. Um, don't just sit back and let it still be a problem. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good thought to leave it on. And where would you like our listeners to go online to find out more about you and about Fledge and about everything else you have going on? So my personal website is lunarmobiscuit.com. Spelled just as it sounds, but um, it's not a common word. It's Lunar Mo Biscuit. Uh, or if you just search Looney Libis, it'll pop up. Um, and uh, that'll point people. To, I have a blog on there, and whenever I have a smaller idea, I'll post it on the blog. Uh, it has the, the first book is now free online. Uh, it has links to the Amazon, links to, to buy the rest of the books. Um, and uh, links to the pledge, links to all the other pieces the, that I work on in the ecosystem. Wonderful. And we'll have links to that as well on the show notes page. Looney, thanks so much for taking the time. It's been an enlightening conversation. I appreciate you being with us today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. This is Henry Lopez, and you've been listening to another episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode of The How of Business. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.